It is another joyous morning, isn't it? This first day of the week, that day spoken of in the Word of God as the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. And as we come together this morning, we are excited and delighted about this privilege, this hours to offer worship unto the One who made us, our Creator, and the One, in fact, who always does what's right and what's well. It is good to be together to get, to be gathered together today and for the next few moments. I'd like you to address, think with me using the Word of God about the question, or at least the matter I've put on the slide, what makes a strong church? Really, it's a fair question, isn't it? I suppose it'd be reasonable to think that everybody with a knowledge of the Word of God would have a desire, would in fact like to be a part of a congregation that would be reckoned as strong. And so as we come to the next slide, the introductory one in many ways, why don't we at least ponder the following? In Revelation 3, verses 1 and following, it's entirely possible for a congregation to have a name that they live and yet be dead. It's entirely possible. We would never want that to be true of the Pippin congregation, for example, nor would we want it to be true of any other congregation of the Lord's people. But the fact that it can happen should always rest in your mind and mine to an extent of urgency that we would never want it to be so, and we would strive to make sure it never does. But that leads to the question, well, what makes a church strong? What can we do? What should we do? What must we do in order to make certain this congregation is vibrant and not by our estimation? We want God to look upon Pippin and say, well done. What must we do in order for Him to say that? What kind of characteristic must we have? And for the next few moments, would you study that with me? As we open the pages of the Word of God, we will find, of course, a number of descriptions. And as we come to the middle of that slide, in Acts 20, 28, it was to the elders of the Ephesian congregation. They were told, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood." The Lord purchased this organization with His blood, and therefore only He can tell us, only He can determine what is it that makes it strong. I think we're all well aware today that quite often statements like this might be heard, or maybe we've even considered it. That congregation, they're growing so much numerically. They're so strong. They're vibrant in the sense of they apparently are attracting meaning. Well, does numerical strength equate one-to-one to spiritual strength? You and I, of course, what we think about that doesn't much matter. But again, what makes a strong church? Let's let God determine it. Study with me beginning as follows. As we turn to the first point of our lesson, the next slide, we discover that one of the natures put before us relative to the church is its likeness of a body. May I suggest to you that that will be a vital matter in order for a congregation to be strong by the estimation of the Lord. And let's develop that point for the next few moments. Isn't it so that the church of our Lord is likened, in fact, very strongly compared to a body? In Colossians 1 verse number 18, as Paul addressed the church of Christ at Colossae, it was to them, he said, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. 
the inspired writer declared the church is the body. That association, of course, carries with it such a deep significance. You and I know well about a body. We have one, our physical body, and we understand something about its nature. Could I ask you to note this? One of the key ideas relative to a body is its members work harmoniously together. They function together. They function according to their task or their job, but they do so in light of a common mission, a common goal, a common destination, a common theme. It's so, of course, that the church is described in exactly that same way in 1 Corinthians 12. May I direct you to verses 14 and following? In that part of that chapter, as Paul addressed that congregation, he pointed out quickly, sure enough, a body has distinct members. But you and I remember, the foot, is it to say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body? And then he lists another example. Because the ear is not the eye, could it maybe reason like this? Because I'm not the eye, am I not of the body? And of course, Paul uses that to assert, sure enough, in the body, which of course is the church, each one has been given skills, capabilities, and talents, and God has set them in the church. Notice Paul said that God set them there. You and I have been placed with our capabilities as such. And of course, the task, in as much as we're a body, is to function harmoniously one with another in this local place to carry out the work of the Lord. You'll notice on that slide, of course, the immediate demand, of course, is that those members of the body, each one must do his part. Each one must function in accordance to his capability. If you and I translate that thought to the church, we might ask, so each of us have been charged and commissioned and challenged by God to do that which we can and by His privilege and blessing are able to do. Am I doing it? Are you? If we are, then praise be unto God and may we continue that. But if not, should we expect our congregation to be strong if I'm not doing my part? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, Paul gave this dramatic description as he listed various offices in the first century church. There's evangelists and prophets and teachers and pastors. But what's the purpose of these? The description follows by saying, God has ordained and established each one for the mutual edifying of the body. And so those who teach, those who encourage, those who edify, those who assist in the carrying out of the functions, their task is for the mutual edification of the body. They don't do it for personal glorification. That's the wrong motive. They do it for the benefit of all of us. You'll notice one last thing. It's essential if a congregation is to be strong that its comparison and likeness to a body be a functional and appropriate one. Part of this lesson, then, is to help us ask these matters of ourselves. As you and I serve individually in the body, am I doing my part? Are you doing yours? If we're not, then, of course, there's opportunity for change and repentance and redirection of talents and capabilities. And may I suggest to you, speak with one of our elders... Maybe there's a work, a task, a charge, a talent, an approach, an activity over which you might have a particular desire and a talent and see if it might not become a matter of interest.
In addition to that, what else must be true? Let's look at the next point of the lesson. Besides likeness to a body, what else might we say? Nature is a family. Nature is a family. Isn't it also true that in the Word of God, the likeness, the comparison is presented in the following way. The church is not only described as a body, it's also described as a family. May I direct you to consider Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. In that particular passage, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But it began by saying, You're the children of God by faith. Children comprise a family, or they are part of a family. And that's so of you and me. And isn't that a lovely thought? To that we might add this text in 1 Timothy 3.15 where a rather great statement is made. On that occasion, Paul, in speaking to Timothy, who, remember, was laboring with the church at Ephesus, he said, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. A family, of course, typically lives in a house, and yet the church is described as the family, the house of God. That thought leads me to the next points then on that slide. God loves His church, and He expects members of His family to love one another and to love Him, of course. Let's look at some of these verses as we develop that. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 9, as Paul addressed the church in Thessalonica, he rather dramatically told them that loving one another was a part of the respected and expected charge of God for them. You love one another. Well, that's what families do, isn't it? But not only that. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, as Paul complimented that congregation, he spoke about their faith growing exceedingly and the fact that the manifestation of their love for one another was so evident. What a beautiful description. To that, could we add 2 John verse 5? On that occasion, a new commandment we receive of the Father that we love one another. One of the things that will be an evident matter of a congregation that's strong is a sense of family as it is an exhibition of the love that they have not only for the truth, but for one another. That kind of love perhaps leads me to note this point. And that must be true regardless of the numerical size of that congregation. Maybe there's only a handful of Christians meeting, but with this rich and vibrant love they have one for another. What a rich enterprise for the kingdom of the Lord they can be. But on the other hand, a congregation that may be exceedingly large, they too need to find ways to ensure that the attribute as a family is, is, is exhibited and manifested. Surely enough, as you and I then think about that matter, the nature of the church is a family. The admonitions of the Word of God are this plain. Let love be without dissimulation. Romans 12 verse 9. That word dissimulation is a big sounding word, but it just means without hypocrisy. Let your love be real and genuine. Let it be sincere and honest. Paul told the church in Rome about that. Of course, by inspiration, he tells you and me the same. To that we might add Galatians 6 verse 2. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ... 
is we begin then to ask of ourselves. We've learned already about the church likened to a body and how vital that is. The church now likened to a family. A congregation will never be strong unless its likeness to a family as presented in the Bible is an evident and structured and vital thing. To what else is the church compared? To what else makes it strong? For not only are these two enough, the next slide will tell us the next one. The Word of God also develops the church not merely as a body, not merely as a family, but as a kingdom. That too is an essential element in order for a congregation to be strong. Let's develop that point over the next few moments. First of all, the church is called a kingdom in Colossians 1 verse 13. To that church in Colossae, Paul directly reminded them that you have been delivered from this present evil world and translated into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, they'd been put in the kingdom. Paul was talking to the church. They were in the kingdom. If you and I today are members of the blood-bought body of Christ, we're in the kingdom. And can't we be thankful, in fact, so honored that we can be so? But in fact, the very nature of that kingdom immediately suggests this. You cannot have a kingdom unless there's a king. Of course, Jesus Christ is our king. The Word of God develops that point so clearly and His sovereignness is absolute. Could we begin by noting Matthew 28 verse 18? After the Lord had been crucified, after He'd already been resurrected in fact, it was to those apostles that He urged them to appreciate this, All power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All of it. It rested with Him, the very one speaking on that occasion, and that was Jesus our Savior. Sure enough, later in the New Testament, He is called our King. I've pointed you to Revelation 17, 14, but along the way in reaching there, we could mention 1 Timothy 6, 15, when the great man Paul, who had spoken with this one Jesus on the road to Damascus, called Him the one and only King, the potentate, the great one indeed. In the Revelation, of course, there's a very great imagery presented. A white horse is shown to us. John, what do you see? Write it in a book. And he saw a white horse and one on it was victorious. And that one was carrying, he was wearing the proper vestments and he was carrying the proper matters, preparing, of course, for the matter of victory. And we're told he was king of kings and lord of lords. Of course, he was the one triumphant over the ancient Roman Empire and shall be the one triumphant on that day of judgment. Revelation 19, verse 16. He's Jesus. He is our King. To say that He's our King then brings me to this observation. One of the features, one of the attributes about a kingdom is those subjects of the kingdom are absolutely loyal to the King. They do not live in anarchy against Him. They don't live in rebellion to Him. They are absolute lawful subjects to the declarations of the King. If the church is a kingdom... You and I then must, if we're to be strong, live in absolute harmony with His proclamations. It's not what you and I wish or prefer that has nothing to do with it. It is what the King has decreed. Look at some of these verses with me. In John 2 verse number 5, interestingly enough, the Lord's mother Mary made this statement, Whatsoever He saith unto you, do it. Now that was stated on the scene of, of course, that first miracle of the turning of the water to wine at the Cana 
at, at Cana in Galilee. But isn't the premise so vital? Whatever He says to you, do it. Don't fight against it. Don't try to find a loophole about it. Look at the next one. In John 14, verse 15, If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. What a simple declaration. You'll notice the citizens then of the kingdom. If they're to be a strong and vibrant body, they, in loyal allegiance to the king, will be devoted followers of him. Might we add two more? In Galatians 6 verse 2, we noted that text earlier, but mention is made of the law of Christ. That's the law that governs our kingdom. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 9 21, Paul in such majesty affirmed that he himself would strive, of course, to do what's possible to bring the knowledge of the gospel to others. But though he said, I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some, he pointed out, I am under law to Christ. And you and I as Christians still lovingly appreciate that truth. May it be, as you and I reach next on the slide, of course, to be loyal to the king is to mean obedience. Isn't it true that a kingdom, even on this earth, if a kingdom is demonstrational, let's say, of anarchy and rebellion, if everybody does what he or she wants, it's a weak kingdom. They're not bound together by a common devotion to one set of laws. But Christ's church is His kingdom. And we are bound together by the mutual fact and power of His blood under one powerful set of gospel laws and ministrations. That'll be a vibrant part of making us strong. Isn't it true that these verses challenge us in that way? In Romans 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul addressed the Roman congregation, and to them he said, Brethren, notice, he mentioned this very loving introduction. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Paul spoke about a class of individuals who themselves were energetic and eager and zealous, but tragically, they had never submitted to the righteousness of God. Isn't it true that to be strong, to be vibrant, to be pleasing to God requires likeness to a kingdom and the appreciation of His laws must be absolute. One final thing on that slide then would be this. Our God's not the author of confusion. He's not the author of what is anarchy and rebellion. There is one church. Ephesians 4 verse 4 identifies there is but one body. So far, we've then likened the church to a body. We've likened it to a family. We've likened it to a kingdom. As we turn the slide to the next one, what else is a necessary part? May I ask that we pause for a moment at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 because on that occasion, we find the church is likened to a temple. Let's develop that point as well. What does it mean to say that the church must be likened into a temple if that church is to be strong? It begins in the following way, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And as Paul asserted that to the church in Corinth, he reminded them very critically there's something about a temple. 
that they were to understand that they were fulfilling in this New Testament age. Well, what is that today? Could it be this? As you and I think about the presentation of the temple in the Old Testament, isn't it true that the people of God worshipped in a tabernacle for centuries? But the time came that David had a desire to construct a fixed, immovable place of worship. It was called a temple. Now, David was unable to do that because of the decree of God, but his son Solomon built it. And so it was that this elaborate, exquisite, very ornate structure was built, and the people of God worshipped in it. It was a place that highlighted God's glory. It highlighted the presence and the grandeur and the marvelous majesty of God. It was always a place to which Israel could turn her attention and be reminded that there is truly a God in heaven. The temple was for praising, for worshiping, for glorifying God. May I submit the church today must have that attribute if it's to be strong. Know ye not, ye are the temple of the living God. As you and I consider the matter of that temple, isn't it so? That in the New Testament we find this interesting presentation. You and I are said to be priests. May I ask, where in the Old Testament then, once that temple was built, where did the priests officiate? Where was it that they carried out their tasks and their capacities? It was at the temple. For God specifically told them, where I have placed my name, that's where the animal sacrifices are to be offered. And yet you and I are called priests. You and I then officiate in the sense that we are the thoroughfares through which glory and praise to God are directed. The world isn't going to glorify God. The world is not going to praise Him. The devil's never going to encourage that. But that's the mission of the church. In Ephesians 3.21, Paul wrote, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And therefore, you and I as the church, one key element of what we do is to direct praise and glory and honor to God just like the ancient temple would have done. To that, could we add this? As you close that slide, you'll notice we come to one final one. So far, we've talked then about the church in light of its nature as a temple. It is with that we might introduce one additional thought. One of the things about a temple was, of course, that it was to be a place to which the people brought in attendance. You couldn't just offer sacrifices anywhere you wanted. Doesn't that suggest something about what you and I might think about relative to the church of the day today? the services and her assemblies, how essential they are. We can't possibly claim to have a strong church if our individuals, if our Christians don't attend. May you and I be excited about the thought of considering the necessity of our presence at the assemblies of the body, at the assemblies of the family, at the assemblies where the temple is. The church is the temple of God. Do you and I make it as high a priority as we should to be present at all of those assemblies? To recognize that as we encourage one another, we're serving as a family. The body is presenting a functionality of each member and lifting high the capabilities. Sure enough, God said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. 
but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, to borrow the words of Hebrews 10.25. Now that verse was preceded by this one, consider one another to provoke to love and good works. You and I would certainly find it challenging to provoke others to love and good works when we're not there with them. May you and I then appreciate to be strong. It will demand presence of the assemblies. Just like God demanded of it in the days of the Old Testament. The people were not allowed just to stay away. He told them they had to go to those places. There's where the sacrifices were offered. There's where the priests officiated. Today, as you and I think about what makes then a strong church, we've looked at four elements so far. The fifth and final one is before you on the, on the wall. The church is also compared to a bride. A bride. What is it about that that's also a very needful part of making a strong congregation, a strong church? Well, first of all, as we have done in all the others, let's remember those verses wherein that comparison is made. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses, 12, uh, verses 2 and 3, Paul identifies the very fact that although it was in simplicity that, of course, Eve fell away, Paul's prayer for the church in Corinth was that they would understand that as the bride of Christ, they too needed to be faithful. Well, sure enough, when we turn to the Revelation, as well as Ephesians 5, verses 25 and following, those continuing descriptions are presented. May I ask you to ponder for a moment, what is it about a bride that is a fair comparison to the church? Is it not this? As you and I study the Word of God, we learn rather quickly, and we also know it by observation. A bride is dedicated solely, uniquely, thoroughly and only to the one who is her groom, her husband. It's unthinkable to imagine that a bride would, of course, in reality, have another couple of men along the side. We know our world looks often very lightly upon things like that, but in the Bible it isn't so. It never was. In texts such as Jeremiah chapter 3 and Ezekiel 16, God charges the ancient people of Israel. They hadn't been faithful to Him. They had committed adultery spiritually. How so? Because you've given your attention to other gods and goddesses and idols. I'm the only God. And when you give attention to them, you're playing the harlot. You're being an adulteress. I am your husband. You are to be faithful to me only, God said to ancient Israel. And today, the message is no different. A church, if she's to be strong, must appreciate she is the fully adorned and beautifully dedicated bride of the Son of God. And as such, she lives a life reflective of that truth. She is given to holiness and purity. Isn't it so that well, a bride usually at least wears white? as a symbol of the purity of her life in preparation for entrance into this marriage state with her husband. But that purity is a highlighted feature of the sanctity of what she stands for and who the person she has been. If the church is described as the bride of Christ, what about the purity of your life and mine? What about tomorrow and Thursday of this week? Is your life and mine the highest state of integrity and purity that would be becoming of the bride of the Master? It should be, it must be, it ought to be. And if it is, 
that group of people sufficiently dedicated to that purity will constitute a strong congregation. Look at some of these verses with me. In James 3, verses 17 and 18, mention is made in reference as well to hear wisdom, but it's not the wisdom from beneath. Oh, it's true that there is wisdom from beneath, and James quickly points out that this wisdom leads to strife and confusion and infighting. But he says the wisdom from above is first pure. Very first thing listed is pure. Do you and I then seek and pursue that wisdom from above that manifests itself in the purity of life? A purity that not only is a sweet reflection of what one's priorities are, but a purity that manifests itself in a daily walk in truthfulness and faith. Maybe it is in that light we arrive at 1 Timothy 5.22. As Paul addressed those words to Timothy of old, three words, keep thyself pure. Now, we live in a world that doesn't place a high premium most of the time on moral purity. Oh, we like purity in every other way. Our water's got to be pure and our food's got to be pure, but many don't care much about moral purity. And yet God says that's the most important purity of all. Life that is reflective of that innocent purity, appreciative of the truth of God, and a life that is uncompromisingly built on it. That kind of purity leads us to one last verse in 1 Timothy 4.12. Because in that same book, be thou an example of the believers. But six things are listed and one of them is purity. May I suggest that the final description of this particular comparison to the bride in Revelation 19 is this. Again, one of the things you and I know as a bride's adorned in white and you and I perhaps have attended wedding ceremonies, and it's such a lovely occasion on most occasions. But have you ever thought about how the Bible describes the final consummation, the final ultimate togetherness? You and I live, of course, with Jesus here in the sense that we follow Him, but we've never seen Him. We've never laid physical eyes on Him. Only through the eye of faith have we seen Him at this point. But do you realize that moment's coming at the day of judgment when those who are His bride on earth will be ushered in with Him for all eternity and in Revelation 19, verses 6 and following, a description is given of the final marriage feast of the Lamb. It's a marriage feast. Who's going to be there? The Lord is the groom. His church is the bride. If you and I aren't a faithful member of that body, if we aren't His bride... Clearly, we're not going to be invited to the marriage feast. And if our life isn't one of purity, we're only fooling ourselves if we think we're going to be there. Five things make a strong church. We've looked at all five of them today. The conclusion slide is the last one. As you look at it with me, may I suggest that many times the consideration of the world says that strength rests only on numbers. And it's true that it excites us to think of individuals who love the thought of what takes place and we want them to come. But may I say, at the most basic level, God gives the increase. And these other five things determine strength. Likeness to a body. Likeness to a family. Likeness to a kingdom. Likeness to a temple. 
And finally, likeness to a bride. Does that describe you and I as we participate in this Pipping Church? I pray that it does. But if it isn't as manifested as it ought to be in strength, may we make the necessary changes, incorporating those things that we can to make our part in this blessed body that which it ought to be. As we close this lesson this morning, we've studied about what makes a strong church. In Revelation 3 verse 8 was our text. The church in Philadelphia. Remember of seven churches of Asia, it, one was, the, it was the most complimented. Oh, it's true. The Lord said, I know your works. And He said, you've got a little strength. But I've put before you an open door which no man can close. Maybe God has placed an open door before this congregation. No man can close it if he has. And may we with energy be ready to walk through it, to carry out the work of the kingdom in this area, to be the family of God here. May I suggest we each examine ourselves with care and with urgency to consider whether or not our understanding of these and our demonstration of them is as they ought to be. If today we could be of assistance to anyone in your obedience to the gospel, don't you want, if you've never become a Christian, don't you want to be a part of that body we've described today? Jesus is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5 verse 23. And so if you're not a part of that body, you're not saved. May I suggest that entrance into that body requires this. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, turning aside from them with the intent to do them no more. That repentance is commanded, of course, in Luke 13, 3. Furthermore, confess audibly the greatness of the name of Christ, a thing commanded in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And upon so doing, those are the prerequisites. You're now ready to enter into that kingdom. You do it in baptism. You are buried in baptism with Christ for the remission of your sins. We'd be delighted to celebrate with you today. May I suggest, though, if you have become a member of that body, maybe you've forgotten one or more of these things. Why don't you come back to your first love? And if matters of a public nature need to be confessed, let us pray to God on your behalf. We'd be pleased to do that. Today, if we could be of help in any way in these matters, we would encourage you to come, invite you to do it at once, while together we stand and sing the selected song.